Gracious Father, we thank you for the many blessings that you have given. Heavenly Father, we have risen up with another day of breath because of you, God. Your grace is amazing. Lord, I pray that in our hearts that you would instill in us a passion for you and that we would find our satisfaction in you, in you alone. There are so many things, God, that, that they vie for our hearts. There's so many things. And you know what they are. And we know what they are. And Father, sometimes we actually don't know what they are because it can be murky for us. I pray that you would help us in these moments right now as we open up your word, oh God that you would open our eyes and our ears and let us see with our hearts and embrace that we would welcome what you have to say to us through your word, oh God. Help me in these moments for, and we pray this for anyone that would take the pulpit, for clarity and truthfulness in the text. Father, we pray for your help. Holy Spirit, Help us in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, you can turn right now to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. Galatians 4, 1 through 20. That is where we are um, at in terms of the series that we've been doing in the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 20. You can certainly download an app on your phone. You can use your paper Bible. Either one is fine. Galatians chapter 4, 1 through 20. We are continuing in a series through this amazing letter that Paul has written to a people that is in grave danger of forfeiting the true gospel for a false gospel, and Paul has tremendous angst and anxiety and frustration over this church that he loves with great passion and care. He has a an, he's an apostle, but he has this shepherd's just care and burden. I imagine that he lost much sleep with great pressing anxieties over this church and all the other churches, by, that, by the way. And we want to see that in the text. But they are in a horrible danger of forfeiting the true gospel for a false gospel. And I say this to us with love and tenderness. Brothers and sisters, there are things that will vie for our hearts continually, daily, moment by moment, day by day, that are not helpful for our pursuit of Jesus and his good news. There are false gods vying for us, and you will see them as he unpacks this. And Lord willing, even in your own life, where maybe, hopefully, you would be able to see that you have been set free from those demonic things to walk with Jesus, free of those things, but also deal with the question, why? Why would you return to those things? I'm reminded of Acts chapter 6 and 7, where um, Stephen, the first martyr, he challenges, rebukes, the people of God and said in your hearts not only did you cast Moses out of the way but your hearts were for Egypt when God was rescuing you from Egypt your hearts were wanted to go back 
One of the things I want to ask us today is, why would we want to go back to Egypt? Why would we want to go back to the false gods that would vie for us? And can you identify what they are in your own heart and in your own mind? We pick up in the text in chapter 4, verse 1, and it says this. I'm going to read it first, and then I'll come back, and I'll, I'll explain and teach and exhort. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know, it was because of the bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of the blessing you felt. For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My children, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. The Word of God. The Word of God. Paul is extremely perplexed about these people, and as we think back at what has happened at this point, Paul has argued that he received the gospel not from men, but from God himself. It is something outside of this world. It is from God. It is not made up from this world, like the elementary principles that he talks about. By the way, those elementary principles are those things that the Galatian people, you see, they were not a Jewish people. They were, um, let's, let's just say, they were pagan people. 
and they had all these things that they observed in this pagan type of worship that they were involved in, these elementary principles that they yielded themselves. They worshiped these demonic forces. You see, they got saved, and then there was a Jewish population called the Judaizers who were saying, hey, that's really great that you've become a Christian, but become a Christian and become a Jew, be circumcised, uh, follow the law, and then you're a real Christian. So for them, it was the gospel plus something else. So the gospel plus something else is really bad and heresy, by the way. And so they were trying to convince these let's call them younger Christians, and coming out of a, a pagan background to buy into this in order to be saved. And Paul is very frustrated with the whole situation, and he's perplexed, and he's pleading with them. And I want you to hear a little bit of how he tries to sway them and help them understand with words of encourage, with words of ch- challenge, words of truth. And I tell you this, they did not like it, by the way. They were frustrated. They were angry. You can hear it in his tone when he says, have I become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth, because I don't want you to go to hell, even though he does not believe that they can lose their salvation. Someone who truly has faith in Jesus Christ cannot lose their salvation with God. It is impossible. It starts out like this. In verse 1, he says, I mean that, The error, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, meaning he has no authority. If you are a child growing up in a household with adults, you have no, you don't have the inheritance yet. You see, in the Jewish world, in the Roman world, in the Greek world, in the ancient world, each one of these groups had different time frames for when someone came to full maturity different age times, and there were different things that would happen for them, where they would, they would come into maturity and receive an inheritance, and, um, and what that meant was that they were going to get all those, those goods and that loot, that, that inheritance. Now, in the ancient world, it's a bit different than we think about it in our own day. You see, in the ancient world, it was the eldest son who would get the inheritance, by the way. And that is why Paul, I want to bring it to your attention again, I've said this before in the past sermon, that is why Paul says what he says, and he says, you are sons, because they can identify and say, you're saying, I'm like the firstborn. I get an inheritance. If you know Jesus, who is the Christ, then you inherit everything from a father, not a worldly father, but a father in heaven who owns it all. That would have blown the minds of the people hearing that because that was not the culture in which they lived. The eldest son got that period and not you. One of the eight. He's the eldest. Period. And now Paul flips that on his head and he says, you get that. And by the way, here's another thing we should understand about adoption and sonship in the ancient world. It's not sentimental. I heard, I heard this from John MacArthur. I thought it was really fascinating uh, through his research about this particular idea. And I thought it was interesting. I just sort of kind of made all these things just go off in my mind as I was thinking about how, how uh, just the research come together with that, with that historical piece and the text. When we think of adoption, we think sentimental. And it is a wonderful, and uh, we have people adopting in our church, and it is wonderful, and it is sentimental. And we should do it. It's a good thing. But in the ancient world, it wasn't. 
You see, if a father did not like his eldest son, he would adopt someone else so that he could get the kind of son that he wanted to take his inheritance. And one of the things that I'm reminded of as we look at this is you and I are not worthy sons. But we have a worthy father and a worthy savior named Jesus. It's amazing. We are not worthy, but he is, and he adopts us. So he goes on to say this. In the same way, we also, um, in verse 3, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles, the, the, the darkness and so forth that the Galatians would have submitted to, okay, of the world. Now, I want us to remember something, brother and sister, that at one point before we knew Jesus, we were slaves of sin. We were held captive by sin. It controlled us. It enslaved us. It's a taskmaster. The really fascinating thing about sin is that it is never satisfied with you. You can never be pleasing. It just owns you. More about that to come. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, Jesus, to redeem those who were under the law, that's us, um, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, one of the problems that was going on with the legalists and why we needed to be um, redeemed, we were people that were under the law, unable to keep the law. And, and let, let, me just, let me help us understand this just a little bit. Here, now, here, here's, here's one of the really big difficulties that, that we have is we have a hard time understanding the law. We do. I'll never forget, I heard Legan Duncan mention this, and it was just fascinating and helpful. He said this, when it comes to legalism, it is the legalists who do not understand the law. And that's the way Jesus deals with his people, like the Pharisees, like the Judaizers. Legalists are legalists because they do not understand the law. Antinomians, fancy word for people that are anti-law and then just want to sin that grace may abound. I'm just going to do, I'm just going to sin so that grace may abound. Antinomianism, they do that because they do not understand grace. On one hand, you have people that do not understand law, and on the other hand, you have people that do not understand grace. The legalizers that are really pushing hard against the Galatian people do not understand the law. They think the law will save them. If I work hard enough, then God will save me because I kept this law. But that is never the way the Bible works. You see, God rescues and then he calls you to obey him. It's a very different thing. When God comes to Moses and he's standing before the Red Sea, he does, with all the people behind him and he's about to open it, he doesn't say, hey, Moses, you guys obey me right now and then I'll open the Red Sea. He doesn't do that. He opens the Red Sea and rescues them and then he calls them in love and says, now you have a father who loves you. Obey me. That's radically different than if I try hard enough and if I obey God, then he will open the Red Sea and rescue me. Then he will put me on eagle's wings and take me away and rescue me. No, he puts you on eagle's wings and flies you away from, from, from death and hell and, and from the enemies. And then he says, you have a loving father, obey me. 
God is a loving Father, and he wants us to obey him. But your obedience cannot rescue you. It is God who saves you. While you were yet sinners, he still died for us. While we were yet sinners, he died for us. Hey, that's so powerful. Amazing grace is that he died for me even while I was yet a sinner. And so the legalists say, they want, hey, look, just work harder, just try harder, but that's not the way it works at all. And then in Paul is, is, is dealing with that, saying, hey, look, you were under the law, but then you have one who was born under the law and adopts us as sons. And then he goes on to say this in verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. We have an inheritance with God if you are a son, and if you are a son, it's because he has saved you, and you are no longer a slave. In fact, he has provided his spirit in such a way that you can cry out, Daddy, to God. Do you realize that what God, the work that God has done in us is done in such a way that we are now free and able to cry out to him, Abba, Father? In fact, that's the same kind of language when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he says, Father, if there is any other way, take this cup from me, talking about the crucifixion. But then he says, but not my will, but your will be done. That language is Abba, Father. And then he comes here to Galatians and it's that same type of intimate, precious, dad, father kind of expression to the heavenly father from Jesus. He says, and because you are sons of God, has sent the spirit of the son into your hearts, crying out the father, that you as a believer in Jesus Christ have that same type of spirit in you, able to cry out. Whereas before, when you and I did not know Jesus, we did not have that heart in our, in our hearts. That heart was not there. We had a heart of not liking God. Formerly, in verse 8, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. They were enslaved to the demonic powers and elementary principles. And, and I, I want to read a little bit of this, and then I'll, I know that we struggle with whether or not that we have that in our context, okay? But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, oh, fascinating. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, Paul says, to be known by God, which is very different, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years, and I am afraid I may have labored over these in vain. Now, the Galatian people, certainly at one point before they knew Jesus, they were enslaved and, and worshiping these, these demonic forces. And we say in our hearts, as good Westerners, hey man, that's not me. But maybe these ones are more dangerous, if I may just stretch it for a bit. Maybe these are more subtle, more dangerous, more sly, more sneaky. Satan has been around a long time. And he can outwit us. 
But we have a Savior. But I'm telling you, we have a powerful and sly foe. Let me say it this way. Because here's the thing. The elementary principles, the, the, the false idols, the things that vie for us, that can appeal to us, they're very sneaky, and we sometimes want to return to them and be enslaved to them for some reason. And you might think, I don't think I have those in my life. Let me just share this with you. Tom Brady, uh, maybe one of the greatest quarterbacks ever. I look around and see how people, if they smile or frown, I don't know. It might be divided. It might be divided, I don't know. Five Super Bowl rings, four MVPs, nine Super Bowl appearances. Wow, that's a lot of them. 80,000 people chant his name over every game. He's married to a supermodel. So am I. He's got, um, he's got money, fame, success, good looks, a franchise built around him. By worldly standards, he has won the game of life. After the third ring, um, he, he, he says, this is what it said. He said, why do I have three Super Bowl rings? And I still think there is something greater out there for me. I mean, maybe a lot of people would say, hey, man, this is what it is. I, I, I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Uh, me, I think, God, it's, it's got to be more than this. I mean, this isn't, this, this can't be what it's all cracked up to be. The guy that has everything says this. Then he says, um, the, the, the commentator says, hey, which ring means the most? And his answer is, it's the next one. What's fascinating is that here's a guy who seemingly has won at life. He has everything from a world from worldly standards are concerned. And it is never satisfying because what's most important? The next ring. Um, uh, the other thing is this. Now, I, there's nothing wrong with playing football and ha having that be your vocation. But, but here's the thing. These things... They vie for us. There are good things that vie for us in such a way that they enslave us and they want us to bow down and worship them. The gods are bloodthirsty still, friends. And they never, ever satisfy. And Paul says, these things aren't even real gods. And you might ask yourself, do I have any of those gods? And I say, yes. Sex. Power. Money. The word of God says you cannot worship mammon and worship him. One of the greatest temptations of our context is money. We live in America. We live in America. I, I, how about this one? Let, let me get real personal. And I, and I, I, I like it's, it's, it's been in my heart. Let me see if you have wrestled with this before as well. It is so incredibly difficult to live where we live, to own a house. It is very difficult. I recently traveled to um, Kentucky, and I was, like, driving around with a friend, and he was explaining to me, you know, this is a very different world than where you've grown up, Israel. You see, everyone can own a home here. <laughs> I'm like, like, what's that? That's the, that category doesn't even exist in my mind. <laughs> what, what is this, dude, heaven? And he's like, no, not at all. It is not. 
And, you know, he's telling me the prices of homes in different neighborhoods and all that. You know, the high-end stuff, like 200 grand. And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, like, dude, the home's right over there, man. They're like a million, you know, right over here, six, right? And, uh, you know, the poverty, six. <laughs> I mean, I don't know, I'm just saying, like, it's, it's a different world here, you know? Um, and I'm talking to an Uber driver, and I say, hey, man, you know, I heard that uh, pretty much anyone here can own a house. He's like, dude, I'm an Uber driver. I own a house. I'm like, dude, what planet is this? And he's like, hey, granted, my neighborhood's pretty rough, but I own a house. <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's cool. It's really fascinating. One of the difficulties that we have for where we live, and it's hit my own heart, and let me see if it hits you as well, is the desire to have and own a home, for example. And what if you can't afford it? One vacation, spouse working a job too, and you can't do it. Let me ask you this. Can you be satisfied with God and him be your all is Jesus your satisfaction even though you cannot get the house and the answer to that for us my friends needs to be yes and I tell you this that the world around us struggles with we do too we understand what it's like to struggle with that but what can happen to us is that we can look back we can look back and say, I want those things. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more, is what Paul says. And it's not just the home. I mean, I'm a dad. It's our kids. And when they're doing well, then we are doing well. And if they are not doing well in school, we are not doing well. Or whatever it is for you. Do you worship your kids? Do you worship the property? Do you worship your wife? Do you worship mom and dad? Are you fearful of man? Do you have fear of man? And you bow down and worship them in some way. Do, we live in a culture that is certainly highly sexualized and has a different Christian ethic than what we have. Can you submit to the word of God in such a way that you say, I can hold off on that within the confines of marriage in a covenant, lifelong marriage instead of the way the world does it through Tinder? Brothers, he says, in verse 12, I entreat you because as I am, for I also have become as you are. This is a really fascinating evangelistic strategy that Paul, is, that's coming out in his explanation and relationship with these people. So I'm going to read through the verses here. Brothers, I entreat you, be, become as I am. Notice that he says that first. Become as I am. He is calling these people to discipleship, be as he is, as he follows Jesus, right? For I also have become as you are. In some way, he was hanging out, spending time with, being shaped, just, just not by the sin of their culture, but spending time with them. I became as you are. You did me no wrong. Now, now why would he say this? Because here's what happens. He's going to talk about his illness. Somehow, within the providence of God, Paul became very, very sick. And he ended up coming and preaching the gospel to these people because he got sick. And they welcomed him and accepted him, and he was able to spend time with them. Now, some commentators say maybe this must have been some sort of eye illness. The scriptures actually do not say. We don't know what it was. But one of the things that he will say is, you guys are willing to give me your very own eyes. 
But his point is this, that he's going to come out and explain that he, by the providence of God, was there to share the gospel with them because of his illness. He's telling them, be like me. I love you. Why are you so angry with me? Because I'm telling you the truth of the gospel. He says, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, so they must have been burdened by it in some way. They had to care for him or feed him or whatever. You did not scorn or despise me, but, listen to this, this is very crucial. Because this says something about the people of God and what we need to do in terms of receiving the preaching of the word and the word of God. He says, but receive me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. And what commentators, they, they say is, you know, this is a powerful lesson for the people of God to be a people that receive the word of God and welcome it as a people. My hope and my prayer for branches ever to be moved forward is that we would be a people not only that would, that, would, that would grow and mature, but we'd be a people that would welcome the preaching of the word and love every single part of it, the, the hard parts as well, the parts that are hard to embrace, the parts that go contrary to our culture in such a way that it's just hard to receive because culture is so ingrained in us that we can't even see it. I mean, you don't think that could happen to us, right? I mean, Galatians were so entrenched with the possibility of embracing a false gospel, they couldn't even see it, and they needed Paul to, to hammer them with it. And though my condition was a trial to you, did you accepted me as an angel, what then has become of the blessing you felt? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? I want to go back to um, um, something very briefly that, uh, that, uh, that was that's just really powerful in light of the sh explaining the good news of the gospel. And Paul says, says this in an amazing order in verse 9 where he says, But now that you have come to know God rather to, or rather to be known by God, one of the great beauties of the gospel is that the gospel is about God initiating grace on us and not us initiating grace on him by any means. It is about him rescuing us. It is about him putting us on eagle's wings. It's about him opening up the Red Sea. It's about him putting us in the shelter of the ark and surviving 40 days and 40 nights and then bringing us out. Even though, by the way, Noah continued to be a sinner when he comes out of the ark, by the way. He doesn't say, yeah, get right and then I'll put you in the ark. He actually rescued him and we see his sin on display for all to see. Hey, I'm Noah. I got real drunk. God initiates with us. Now, hey, Paul says, they want to make much of you. They want you to bow down to what it is that they're doing, and um, it's no good. In verse 17, they make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and, and not only when I am present with you. And then he says this, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. My little children, for whom I am again 
in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I want to speak right now, not knowing who God would raise up to be future elders and leaders within our church. We have a couple, there's there's a few of us, well, there's three of us right now, myself, David, and Scott. But as we move forward, one of the things that I've I'm, I'm, I'm dr- been dreaming of and I can hardly wait to have is a training route for, um, for these, that would as- these men that would aspire to be these types of leaders. They would understand theology, philosophy, ministry, um, and friendship, and it would be ingrained in their hearts. And they would have a passion for the people of God in such a way that they would lose sleep over you because they love the people of God that they will get grayer before your eyes. And they may even die sooner because of the labor. But you know what? Isn't it biblical? They should be healthy, and they should take care of their bodies, and they should do all they can. But Paul says, he says, My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth, until what? Until Christ is formed in you. This is the hope. This is the pastoral hope hope and desire and passion, people of God, our angst and our desire for you is that Christ would be formed in you. Make no mistake. And we will ring that bell and preach the gospel and call you to stuff and discipline you. By the way, discipline starts with the preaching of the word. The preaching of the word is corrective. It's shaping the speaker and the people of God. It's guiding. It's transforming. It's changing us. And I want you to know, as we see these type of men that would aspire to those things, that they will be trained theologically and philosophically and, and understand and have this type of heart that just says, I love the sheep even when they're mean. And so now I want to I close with, with, with these words. And Paul says, I wish I could be there. Present with you now and and change my tone but i'm perplexed about you he has this amazing pastoral perplexion over them fear and concern that they are giving into a false gospel brothers and sisters is there ways in which that you are yielding to the old life and it is enslaving you it will never never satisfy you it will never fulfill you Whatever it might be, do you know what it is? Can you identify it in yourself? Is it, is it one of the big three? Is it sex? Is it power? Is it money? When you're in your heart of hearts, those things that you long for, do you go back to which area? Know this that you are a son or a daughter of have an inheritance and your heart of hearts, you cry out, Abba, Father, Dad. That's the true identity of who you are if you're in Christ. And if you're here today and you would say, I don't really know if I'm a Christian, then we want to talk to you. We want you to understand the good news of the gospel. You may have come to church for years and realized, I don't think I'm a Christian. I've wondered then we want to help you understand the gospel. Let's pray.